Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. One of the really nice blessings we have as, as a church is that God has just brought in multiple people who can come and, and teach and encourage us, that, that you, we have multiple men who can come in and open up the word and, and, and just show us what God has for us, that you don't have to hear from just me every single week. And so I asked Chris Dees if he would come and, and bring the, the word today. We're continuing in our book of Ephesians uh, study, so would you welcome Chris as he brings the word? All right. <clears throat> Thank you. Such It's always an honor and a privilege to be able to stand and expound on God's Word. And, you know, I was thinking of something that was kind of funny, but, you know, because our, our crowd isn't quite as dense as it was in the first service. I had a preacher when I was younger that, you know, like Wednesday night service or Sunday night service or whatever, if there wasn't as many people as normal, he'd like make them all come to the front. So I'm not going to do that to you. You know, I know how we are. We can be quite protective of where we are, but no. I just thought that was kind of funny looking around. I said, hmm, I wonder what old Pastor George would do right now. So anyways, um, before we get started, if you would, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for just, like I said, this honor, this privilege just to stand uh, at your, in your church and to open your word. And I just pray today that, that you would uh, have complete and total freedom to move and do whatever you will to do. Uh, I pray that today, if we came in here for any other reason than to bring glory and honor to your great name, any other reason than Christ alone, I pray that you'd forgive us and you'd move us out of that frame of mind into a perspective that, that is uh, looking and expectantly looking, Lord, earnestly believing that uh, we're here for a purpose. For such a time as this, Lord, we trust that you're sovereign. We trust that nothing happens by accident, but that you calculated this moment, and now I pray that you would use it as only you can. I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to obey, and I pray that our wills would be submissive to yours and that you would change us where we need to change and, and just help us to grow in the areas that we need to grow. And Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace, for your love, your compassion and forgiveness and all the things that, that we would uh, fail to remember. And I just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... You know, as we continue in the book of Ephesians, as we're in chapter 3, let's go ahead and open up there really quick. And uh, we're going to go ahead and survey these verses, and then we'll back up a little bit, okay? So in beginning in chapter 3, we're going to start with verse 14. Paul writes, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory that He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so this book of Ephesians, I know we've been in it for several weeks now, and, and you know we've gotten some really good things out of here, but I think it's always profitable. It, all, it benefits us to kind of back up, and, and what have we learned, or what, what are we looking at, and why are we here? And, but, but Paul is writing this, this epistle to the Ephesians while he's imprisoned in Rome. Okay, so imagine Paul, if you would, this, this seasoned saint, okay, this missionary, this pastor, this leader, this person who has invested, you know, the, the better part of his years into advancing the gospel. Okay, now he's sitting in prison. Okay, now he is uh, um, writing this letter, okay, that is not only did it greatly benefit those in Ephesus and around Ephesus who were, been, were able to read this letter in circulation, okay, but us today. And that begs the question, just something kind of like an icebreaker, I just want you to think about it. I want you to let it, you know, it just kind of resonate within you. And I'm figuratively speaking, okay, if you've ever been incarcerated, that's none of my business, you know, but all I'm saying is figuratively speaking, you know, have we ever really, have we, have we ever felt imprisoned? by life, by circumstance, by uh, things around us, things out of our control. Maybe it's the product of our, of our own decisions, whatever that may look like. You know, have we ever felt imprisoned? And then have we ever thought to consider that, you know, what if our greatest contribution or one of our greatest contributions, what if our deepest intimacy with the Savior were to be born from that imprisonment? You see, Paul's in prison, but he's writing this letter that went further than he could see, further than he could travel, and it's sitting right here in our laps today. And, and we have to stop and we have to be mindful of the fact that life is hard and things happen and, you know, it just it makes us grumble or it makes us discouraged. Or, you know, if you need encouragement in the midst of discouragement today, be encouraged to know that God is a God that takes situations like this and can do some really amazing things with them. And we're holding it in our hands today. Okay? So the book of Ephesians is, you know, it's this amazing theological essay. Okay, it's so deep, it's so rich. I don't think I mentioned this in the last service, but you know, the case can be made and many scholars will contend that the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are some of the, are the richest theology-wise, okay, doctrinally speaking, in all of sacred Scripture. I mean, you look at it, Paul begins with laying out what it means to be who we are in Christ with the gospel and makes that very clear about how that salvation occurs. And then he moves into this... Uh, this idea of being united in Christ because we have we are united together because we're first united with Him, and then after that, he's, what He's doing is sets the ground for then how do we live? You know, how do we walk? You know, this is uh, this is what Paul is doing. He's giving you this 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 idea, this concept, his perspective of what the Christian life is, how it begins, what it looks like, the nuts and bolts, but then you know what it actually does, and because of that. Or, or from that, you know, I want you to take notice of something, too, that Paul has this reoccurring theme, this reoccurring point in his writings, okay? And he says it over and over again, not always in the same words, but his writings are always gospel-centric. And he, even like he says to the, the, the church at, at Corinth, he tells them, he says, you know, I didn't want to know anything else among you. If you didn't remember anything else I said, or if I couldn't remember anything else to say, all I want you to know is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
Okay, and if I would add anything to that, it would be resurrected and ascended and, and coming back again. But, you know, everything that Paul says is leading us to this point, okay, is that God knows what He's doing. Okay, God knows what He's doing, and God does what's best. And all of this can kind of fall under that overarching theme. But either way, uh, because subsequently in, in all of that, everything that we experience in the Christian life from salvation to glorification when we stand before Him is, is a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit is the initiator in all of this. Salvation is God's idea. It's not mine. Okay? I wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus found me. Okay? I didn't wake up one day and decide, you know what, I think today's a good day to start being a Christian. Or today's a good day to get born again. No. No, God, the Holy Spirit radically interrupts our lives and changes us. And see, I think it would do us all a good service to study Him. His character and being and His work. Okay? I had this professor in, in seminary that would constantly... He, he loved to, to preach on or to teach on pneumatology, which is just the study of the Spirit, Holy Spirit. And, and he would talk about the Holy Spirit being the forgotten member of the Trinity, and that took me off guard because I never, I never knew that. I never thought of that, but coming up in the traditional circles that I had, yeah, you hear a lot about God, you hear a little bit about Jesus, but you don't really hear a whole lot about the Holy Spirit unless you're you know, on the other end of the spectrum. And I'm, you know, and I'm not casting shade or anything like that, but that Holy Spirit would almost make us afraid, like, oh, wait a minute. Especially if you're reading in your King James and it says Holy Ghost, you know? So it's kind of one of those things that, you know, we have to remember, okay, first of all, that the, the, the Godhead is something we'll never wrap our minds around. It is a mystery. Whether you try to use an egg or a clover or any of these things, there are no tangible examples that give us a thorough understanding or provide us with an adequate example of who or how the Godhead exists and operates, okay? We just understand that they are distinct in person, Okay, they are equal in power and then they're submissive in duty. The Father sends the Son and the Son sends the Spirit. But other than that, you know, it, it, it's a mystery. Our finite capacity, we can't wrap our minds around that, but we can trust that God, okay, is who He says He is and does what He says He'll do. And the Holy Spirit is just as much evolved in all of that as we, um, as we believe God to be, God the Father to be. So... And we, we desperately need Him, like I said, because sacred Scripture is clear. It is very clear in its teaching that the Holy Spirit is the one with all this begins, the initiator. And then He's the one that executes in our lives, the one who teaches us. Why do you think Jesus said, hey, y'all ain't ready, all right? You're not ready. Somebody's coming after me, but you're not ready. You need to go and pray. And when you're ready, He'll come. When, God, when, when God's ready... He'll come, okay? So the Holy Spirit is the one that carries us, the one who empowers us, who works in us and through us and orchestrates all around us, okay? And, and the Holy Spirit is the one that not only introduces us to the gospel, but realizes the gospel in our hearts and in our lives, okay? And that same gospel, I want you to hear me today, is not a gospel of me being a better version of me, okay? The gospel is not you becoming a better version of you. Okay, Jesus had this, if you look back in John chapter 5, He teaches very clearly that, no, we pass from death to life. 
Leonard Ravenhill used to say over and over again that, that it's not, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead people alive. All right? And in that, this gospel that we preach, this gospel that we believe, this gospel is centric on this idea that, hey, this is all God. None of me and all of Him. And it's, it's essentially what we're trying to say is, that we're just like Paul says to the church of Galatia, he tells them in chapter 2 that any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. And old things have passed away and you're new now. You're different. You're not a better you, you're a new you. Okay? You're changed. You have the identity of your father now. Okay? So with all of that, um, if you remember a little bit back, several weeks back at the beginning of the summer, I believe, Pastor Tim taught us on something that is a word we use every day all the time. It's so common in our vernacular that I just don't know how we didn't think of this before. But he, he talked about biblical imperatives and then biblical indicatives. Yeah, that rings a bell, right? Exactly. So it's a word that we don't use, but yet it's a word that's there and it undergirds what we understand. And in this Ephesians, and the only reason why I'm telling you this is because we're coming to the end of a section. Ephesians can be divided into halves. Chapters 1 through 3 are the imperatives. These are the commands. These are what God is doing. This is what God is... These are facts. This is theology and doctrine, okay? And then in chapters 4 through 6 is what this is preparing us for is where we find those indicatives, those commands, those things that we are told to do, how we live, how we respond, okay? So in, in understanding that, okay, that's how we move into this at the end of chapter 3 because at the end of chapter 3, we find this prayer that Paul has for the believers. And in this prayer that is closing out chapter 3, we find the, the culmination of everything he has been teaching us in these three chapters, and it bottlenecks into this prayer that is so much deeper and bigger and, and, and more um, um, rich than, than the, the handful of verses that we read here. And that's our job at this point is to unpack this and what is Paul saying? Because you notice his priority in this prayer before we break into chapter uh, verse 14. His priority in this prayer. Paul's in prison writing a prayer for believers in Ephesus or that area. And Paul is not praying for it to, to get me out of prison. Paul's not praying for a change of circumstances. He's not praying for anything physical, material, tangible, any of that is strictly a spiritual prayer for the inward working of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers where Christ dwells and where power is implanted, okay, before we migrate into chapter 4 and we're going to learn how to walk, okay? That verb walk is all through Ephesians. It's, it's this idea of how then shall we live? What does that look like in our lives, Okay. So look with me in chapter in verse 14, chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason. For this reason. What's that reason? Well, he just broke it down. He had three chapters worth to know what that reason is. This reason he's referring, just think about it, all the way back through about God's plan to unite Jews and Gentiles through their common faith in Christ. Okay? And, and you think about that unity, you know, Pastor Josh has talked about that more than once, about unity and how important unity is, not just as the church, capital C, but in the local church also. And in that, you know, I had this excerpt I wanted to share with you. 
Um, A.W. Tozer, who's written so many great works, has this book called The Pursuit of God. If you hadn't read it, I recommend it, okay? And in there, he gives this example, this illustration, should I say, and he calls it The Church with a Hundred Pianos. And he says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be where they become were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive just for a closer fellowship. Social religion is perfected when private religion is purified. The body becomes stronger as its members become healthier. The whole church of God gains with the members that compose it to when the, when the members that compose it begin to seek a better and higher life. Let me summarize that for Chris, okay? We don't focus on unity, we focus on the unifier. That's it. We don't focus on each other, we focus on Him. It, we focus on Christ alone because Christ alone is the tie that binds us together. He's our tuning fork, if you want to call it that. And unity is simply the collective product, the, the summation of all of the believers individually seeking God with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength, okay, simultaneously. That's where unity comes in. That's the whole concept of what we're trying to learn. Okay? And then Paul says as he's praying, he says, I bow my knees. Okay? And that's just simply his heart's posture towards God. Sure, you can get on your knees. Customarily, Jewish men stood when they prayed. Okay? So it's not necessarily a demand that you have to fall to your knees, but at the same time, the knees designate humility, even surrender. And that's the posture of our hearts as we pray. But let me show you the big word in there, in that verse. Paul calls God Father. And I don't know if you knew this, but Father seems to be a, a common des a designation for God in the New Testament. Jesus even taught us to pray that way, our Father who art in heaven, okay? But it was not common at all in the Old Testament. The Old Testament you find God, and most of the time, like if you're reading, and if you haven't noticed it before, you'll start to notice it now, is that you will find God written a couple of different ways. You'll see Lord, where it's capital L, capital O, capital R, it's all capital letters. Letters, letters that's nice. Um, easy for you to say. And then you'll find a different designation for Lord that's just a capital L, and the rest is lowercase. Okay? There's a reason for that. Because the Hebrew translators, the word, the word where Lord is all capitalized is God's formal name of Yahweh. Okay? Now, if you remember back in the, in, in the Exodus, back in, when, God, uh, in, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush and God lays out this plan for him and Moses is like, that's never going to work because, you know, I'm a part of it. And then Moses is like, okay, if, this were, if I were to do this, who do I tell him sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. And that I am is Yahweh. Now, the Jews took this name serious, okay? They didn't casually throw God's name out like we do. You would never hear a Jew say, like, oh, my God, or, you know, just the OMG, you know, things that we throw around just so flippantly in our society because the Jews, when they wrote God's name, they left out the vowels because of their reverence for Him. They would write Y-W-H-W. -W. They wouldn't even write God's name completely, okay? 
because they had honor and reverence for who God is. And then that other designation of Lord where it's just the capital L, that is God as our sovereign one. Okay? He's a sovereign. He's in control. He is the one who is orchestrating things around us. Okay? That's a title almost for who God is. But then in the New Testament, we encounter this word Father. Because Jesus, because of Jesus, we now have this incomparable privilege to call God, Yahweh, Father. Don't miss that. Don't take that for granted. Because of Jesus, we have this incomparable privilege to call God Father. So in this prayer, first and foremost, understand this prayer is about God, not about me. The Bible was written to me, but the Bible's not about me. The gospel is for me, but it's not about me. Okay? God is the subject. God is the primary focus of this prayer. And let me say this again too. In our prayers, a lot of times we don't want to pray in front of other people or we just don't want to, you know, we, we, we shield ourselves from that because we're afraid it won't be long enough or we're afraid it won't be eloquent enough or we're afraid it won't be scriptural enough or it just won't be as, as poignant enough or whatever, okay? But in prayer, because of who we pray to, it's not the matter, the subject of our prayer as much as it is the object of our prayers. And a sincere prayer given reverently to a holy God has more gravity than anything that we could do otherwise. So remember that, okay? So then we move into verse 15. And he says, For whom every family in heaven on earth is named, and that, that is essentially, this is not a, a, an appeal to universalism where everyone one day is all going to be saved. No, this is what this is saying is God is in there again, not just a creator, okay, but he is... He has full and unquestionable sovereignty over all people, okay? And every believer falls under his category of, of, of headship, okay? So it's not just saying that everybody is there. It's believers through all the ages, all people, everyone inclusive. God is on top, all right? And then in verse 16, we move down. It says, and that according to the riches of His glory, the riches of His glory, God's immeasurable resources, uncalculable resources. In other words, God's resources that are just more, they're limitless, okay? He says, those resources, those riches of His glory may be, may He grant, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. That is, golly, there's so much to unpack right there. You know, Paul, he's returning to these concepts of power and knowledge that were a part of what he preached on, what he prayed about, and back in chapter 1, and then, you know, once again, we're talking about what the Holy Spirit is doing, okay? Because he says that very clearly, through His Spirit, in your inner being. Now, this inner being, this is what we have to be careful about. This is some of Paul's most direct language and direct teaching concerning the work of the Holy Spirit within the heart of a Christian believer. And when I say the word heart, okay, we have to understand what a heart, what your heart really is. Your heart is the real you. Okay, I'm not talking about the seed of your emotions. I'm talking about who you are. Okay, who you are truly on the inside. And this is our heart, okay, and 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 in that heart, we have to protect it. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. But that heart, okay, is where this is making, this is where this is happening. This is where this is beginning because salvation and, and even 
you know, we talk about sanctification, which is God's process of making, him, making us holy as He is holy. It all begins in here, okay? It's all here. Just as we talked about our unity is us looking up, okay? It, we have to think upwardly, then we think inwardly, then we think outwardly. And each one is in a step from the other, and you pull one out and, it doesn't, and the other doesn't follow. We can't change here until we change our perspective, okay? And we can't change it. Our actions are always fruit of who we really are, okay? So then, verse 17, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, okay? This is where we have to hit the brakes for a minute because he's talking about Christ dwelling in your heart. Now, dwelling, that's a living place, right? Now, uh, follow me here. How many people, especially you ladies, love unannounced guests? You might occasionally, if it so happens on the weekend, just after you spent the week getting everything in order and the house is just, you know, pristine. But let's be honest, most of the time someone announces, hey, I'm going to come over and see you for a bit, or, you know, we're all coming down this weekend, or, you know, you've, however that looks, it's a mad scramble, is it not? Okay, we're sweeping stuff under the bed. We're shoving it in the closet. We're trying to polish the, the fixtures. We're trying to straighten that picture above the couch. It's been crooked for six months. We're trying to do things that we haven't done because we know that someone is coming over. Okay? We don't want to present anything other than our best to our, to, to our guest. And that rhymed, and I didn't mean for that. But, you know, you're welcome. That's a perk. Okay? So, nonetheless, this is talking about Christ dwelling in here. Now, take that same example. If you knew that Jesus were coming to pay you a visit, how would your house look? Might be a coat of paint coming, huh? Might, might be time to change that doorknob that doesn't, you know, that sticks or, you know, whatever the case may be. All right? What if Jesus were going to ride in your vehicle? Time to break out the armor, all right, and the air freshener. We're going to do something different. Okay? Why would our hearts be any different than that? But yet, the Scriptures clearly teach that Jesus is coming to dwell in here, but yet in here is in here worthy of Him. Okay? Is in here someplace that, that I would be ashamed if Jesus showed up? Or is in here a place to say, no, Lord, you're welcome? Because guess what? When Jesus comes to indwell, to live, He's not a guest. He's a landlord. You know, the Scriptures teach that. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You no longer belong to yourself. You belong to Him. And yet, oftentimes I think that, that we're not mindful of what we allow to crowd our hearts to where Jesus can't even barely get on the porch because of all the things, that we, all the clutter that we have. Okay? So He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. And then we've got to stop and talk about this word love. We talked about love in the last service, and you know, it's, it, this talk about love is not very loving. Um, it's just the way it is. Sorry. He gets my jokes. That's so good. So, you know, let me ask you a rhetorical question, and then we'll move on from there. You know, if, I'm going to ask you, do you love God? Okay? And our knee-jerk response is yes. It's always yes. Most of the time, maybe. By whose definition? 
By what definition and what standard do you love God? Do you define your love? Does God define your love? Does society define your love? What standard are you holding? Do you love God as much as you feel like? Do you love God as much as the next person? Do you love God as much as He demands or as much as He deserves? It's a really deep question. And see, in our culture, in our society, and it's gradually happened over time to the point we are where we are now, love has lost its meaning. Love has lost its flavor. Love has lost its thrust. It doesn't... I mean, we just so flippantly throw out love. I mean, we'll say in the same breath how we love, you know, I don't know what example, we love pizza and sports and, you know, whatever it is. And then, but we also love our family. I love our, my wife and my kids or, you know, my church or whatever the case may be. And in that same love, it, it, it doesn't mean the same, but yet we use it the same because we, we, don't, we don't stop for a moment to think, what are we doing? Because... We have to proceed with caution when using the word love because who defines love? Well, Scripture defines love. God defines love. God is the example. God is the epitome of love, the pinnacle of love. So that love has to proceed from somewhere other than me, okay? I mean, the Scriptures are clear about what God teaches about love. And yet, we live in a society, especially our society now, that our postmodern, secular, and I ran out of things to call it in the last time, but, you know, this, this subjective and ambiguous definition of what people do and what's right and what's wrong and everything in our society these days is just so casually used or it's either distorted and perverted to where the word love, you know, that we heard for 30 days, and this I'm not going to completely get on this soapbox, but I'm just going to tiptoe on it for a minute. This, this, this word love for 30 days a month or so ago was love is love. And you heard it everywhere and saw it everywhere. And all the companies changed their logos. And it was just, let me say this. Love is not love. Okay? It, it, that, that doesn't work. What you have to understand is, is that God defines love. And anything that you call love that does not lead you and the, other, and the recipient of that love closer to God is a decorated lie. You see, the Satan, one of his biggest deceptions in us today is he's convinced us that feelings and emotions trump facts, that they trump logic and reason. And that doesn't work because let me tell you something. Your feelings and your emotions lie to you. Mine lied to me and I don't think I'm the only one. You can't trust your feelings. You can't trust your emotions. Because they change, they fluctuate, sometimes on the hour, okay? You have to go back to a standard of what does this really look like, what does this really mean, and how do I respond accordingly, and we have to look at sacred Scripture to understand what is love. What is love? How do I, how do I proceed from that? Okay? So he says that, rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Okay, and those are not really dimensions other than just letting us know the vastness of who God is, the vastness of the love of God, all right? And verse 19, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of God that you can't, I can't, no one can wrap their mind around. The infinite love of God that just completely overwhelms our finite faculties. 
He says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. All the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And let me say this about that. Okay? He wants you to know. I'm going to back up a little bit and then come back to this. He wants you to know Him. To know Christ. To know His love. That word know used here is the Greek gnosko. And it occurs over 200 times in the New Testament. And it is an experiential knowledge. Okay? It is an intimate knowledge. In other words, it is describing a relationship that is so much deeper than anything on the surface. It's not the word no, like, hey, I know who George Washington is. Yeah, I mean, I read a lot of history, took history in school, think history is really interesting, but I don't know him. I know what somebody's told me about him. I know what I've learned, but I don't know him. But at the same time, I have this, this lady over here that I've been married to for almost 18 years, and I know her really well. And she knows me really well. And this journey we've been on has had some really big highs and some really low lows, but we've made it to this point. We know each other. This word know and this concept here of Him talking about us knowing Christ is attached to the Jewish idiom that you would find in the Old Testament where it talks about a husband and wife would know each other in their marriage. In other words, you, you find it traced all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 where it says Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore him a son. It is a deep, personal, intimate knowledge. Okay, It is a, is a sacred knowledge. And it comes through life experience. It's not me reading the Bible and knowing Jesus. No, it's me completely surrendering my life to Him. It has in His Lordship, I come to know Him personally. And then He talks about the fullness of God. And just simply put, the fullness of God. How can I take from, how can I receive from God with a clenched fist? How can you pour into a vase that's already full? You can't. And that is our warning from Him. That is our encouragement from Him is that we've got to empty out ourselves so that we can be filled with something worth being filled by. You know, but too many times we're coming to God with a full purse and expecting Him to add to it or trade us out something along those lines, and God says, no. You see, and I would use this example when teaching little ones about, you know, what, when, when life kicks us down, when life knocks us down, when life squeezes us, what's in is going to come out? And I say, hey, if you had a cup of juice and you knocked it over, what's going to happen? And they say, it'd make a mess, you know. And, and I say, well, why did that happen? Well, because my mom didn't put a lid on it. And I'm like, well, yeah, you're right, but, but, but why did that happen? Because that's what was inside. You squeeze an orange, what's going to happen? It's going to go everywhere. Because what was inside is responding to pressure outside. That's me, and that's you. When life kicks me down, when life squeezes you, and you respond in anger and frustration, that wasn't the, the, the circumstance's fault. That's my fault. Because I've allowed it to take residence in here. But if life kicks you down and you respond with the fullness of God, then guess what? fullness of God is going to come out. The fullness of God is going to overflow from you. Think about that. When your cup runs over, what runs out? Okay? And then now we're going to, we're going to summarize this in the end, or Paul summarizes this at the end in verse 20 and 21. Okay? And he begins, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. 
And before I go any further, and I laid this disclaimer at the last service, and I'd be remiss if I didn't do it again, okay? Please, please don't use this verse. This is not a name it and claim it verse, okay? This is not a verse that's meant for us to extract solo from the passage, from the passage, from Scripture, and for us to say, well, you know what? God can do greater than I could ever imagine. You know, I was going to buy a Ford and I got, you know, a Ferrari, okay? You know, I, I was hoping that, 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 you know, my team would win by a touchdown, and guess what? They blew them out. You know, God's good. Everything's abundant. No. This is not I can do all things through a verse taken out of context, okay? This verse is about God. It's not about me. This verse is about Him. How does He begin? To Him. Okay? To Him. Now, when it says that He's able to do abundantly more than we could ask or think, or what He's describing is God, not what God's going to do for you. Now, can God do that for you? Absolutely. Will God do that for you? Up to Him. I don't know. Maybe will, maybe He won't. Or maybe He'll do it in a way that you didn't think. Maybe the abundance is going to be within and not without. You think Paul was living abundantly? Yes and no. Okay? He's living abundantly in prison. His heart is about to explode, but his circumstances are bad. Okay? We have to understand what Paul is saying. He's drawing our attention back to God at the end of this prayer, now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. In other words the part where he talks about us having power and strength to know Christ, to comprehend, to love this relationship, that's the abundance. That's he's able to give you a relationship with himself that you didn't know existed. He's able to give you a love for him that you didn't know was possible. He's able to give you the ability to receive from him in those ways that you didn't even think was, was, was going to ever happen for you. He's talking about the fullness of Himself, not the fullness of everything around us. This is a spiritual prayer, not a tangible materialistic prayer. Okay? And then according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church. He's given God glory for all God has done for generation and generations. Now, all of this, okay, is bringing us to this place where we understand, okay, that this work of the Holy Spirit, what Paul has done is bringing us to this idea that, that, that God is able to do anything, okay? And this is about, that this abundance begins with this miracle of salvation. And salvation, trust me here, is nothing less than an absolute miracle. Because like I said, you weren't sick, you weren't broken, you weren't having a bad time, you were dead. We are dead. We need to be brought to life, Okay? Have we experienced, we have by grace, through faith, and Christ, all of those alone, have we experienced those as the Scriptures teach to the glory of God alone? Have we experienced that? Have you had a miracle in your life? In Luke chapter 18, and this is the end, in Luke chapter 18, Luke writes this story, or recalls this story, records this story of Jesus on His way into Jericho, passing through. And on the road outside, there's this lame man, there's a beggar, and he's begging for anything and everything. And all of a sudden, this beggar hears a commotion. He's like, hey, what's going on? And I misquoted that. He's blind. He's not lame. He's blind. Okay? So let's back up. A blind beggar. So he's blind, and he asks what's going on. 
And Jesus says, hey, or I'm sorry, they say, hey, Jesus is coming through. So in that moment, that beggar begins to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Notice what he says. He's blind, but he's begging for mercy. He knows. And then the folks around him are like, hush, be quiet. Stop, stop, don't do that. So then the Scripture says that he cries out even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. And it says Jesus stopped. And then commanded them to bring him over. So he brings him over and then Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? He said, I, I want you to recover my sight. And that's when Jesus says to him, your sight's been recovered. Your faith has made you whole. And the guy runs off praising God and, and, and exclaiming what God has done for him. So that begs the question to us, okay, what do you need to cry out about today? What's in you that you need to cry out about? Because this passage, this little scripture, the, this little story, this snippet, this closing conclusion at the end, cry out to God while He is near because let me let you in on a secret. You don't have tomorrow. You definitely don't have the next day. Okay? No promise. The Bible says that today is the day. And in this story, this beggar cries out. He didn't say, well, maybe I'll do it. I'll get around. I'm not ready yet. Or, or, you know, tomorrow will be a better day. Or, you know, I just need a little bit more time. Maybe another day. No, we got to cry out to Jesus when He's near because you know why? A little interesting fact about this story. Jesus never went to Jericho again. He went through Jericho on His way to Calvary. Had this beggar not cried out while Jesus was near, the beggar would have died blind. And the same thing is for us. We're not guaranteed that Jesus will pass our way again. He's calling to you today. He's giving you the opportunity to cry out today. What obstacles do you have? Who is around you telling you to shush and be quiet? What inside of you is preventing you, is hush hushing you and telling you to be quiet? I've been there too many times. And you get to this place to where you have to cry out to Him and let me tell you there's no greater place to be than when the Savior is near and you recognize your need and you give it to Him. Cry out to Him today while you can because tomorrow is not tomorrow. All you have is right now. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.